0: May be seated. Thank you, Rhonda, for reading. <clears throat> Those of you who don't know me, my name is David. I'm one of the pastors here. Um, just wanted to say a little bit about what Jeff was talking about at the very beginning of our service with that video. Uh, church planting is—it's like a, at the core of everything that we are as a church. Um, and some people, church planting. Many of you who weren't maybe part of either church before we merged. Church planting is just like a new concept to you. You don't you haven't experienced everything that we have had to experience. Both of us were as churches early on. We're setting up things and tearing it down. We had we didn't have a building. You know, nothing was like this. And I just want you to know that if we truly desire to see um, lost people reached, it, church planting is the vehicle to get us there. That it, it is the way. And, and here's the reality of it: why we're even having something called Church Planting Sunday is because. Five, six, ten years ago, if you wanted to find a church planter, you just went and picked them off the youth pastor tree. It's not a real thing. No one's laughing. You guys better wake up this morning. Um, But that's that's the reality. Corey was a youth pastor. I was a youth pastor. And then we both became church planters. and, And I can just keep naming off person after person who was a youth pastor. Well, there are no more youth pastors to go pick off the tree and, and have them go plant churches. Now it's finding guys within the congregation to come up and, and to build them up and to send them out to go and plant churches. And and so just so you know, like our desire as a church is not to ever grow to see thousands of people. Like That's just not it. We, we, we could care less about any of that. It's that we want to see the next city reached that doesn't have a, a gospel-centered church, the, to see the next group of people who would never come here reached with a different type of church. And, and so the goal is to find you and to raise you up to become a, a, a church planter or a worship leader in a church plant because that's the way we're going to see the gospel spread all throughout the Metro East and ultimately to the ends of the earth. And so I just wanted to say it because, man, it's such a good thing that we have such strong networks like Acts 29 and the SIN network that we're part of to just to push that and to see it as an important thing. Um, so yeah, that's, that's it. I just wanted to say that to you guys. I'm excited to get to preach to you guys. We're still in, in Judges in our series, Lest We Turn. If you've been walking with us, you know what I'm talking about. We've walked through Joshua and now we're in Judges. And last week I basically told you a story. I told you the story of Gideon and just how like he was a coward basically hiding away. And then he progressed to being a leader and almost sort of a, like a king, and we'll talk about that more, but then he led Israel, and then he died, and so that's kind of where we were at, and and so as I did that last week, what I did is I told it in a story form, and which is good, because in our missional communities, if you don't know, we've been doing what's called story-formed way. We're walking through the Bible um, from the very beginning of creation, and telling it in a story way, and then just talking about it. You can't talk about anything that's came after that story. So, like, if you're talking about creation, you can't talk about the Apostle Paul because the Apostle Paul doesn't exist yet. And so, it's really helpful that in the sermons this past couple weeks, that we're doing it in a story-formed way by telling a story. And I really think our culture has lost much of what oral history provides. I mean, if you go to most other countries, like, it's not about history books. It's about Generation to generation passing down the stories of history and of their culture and what's taken place and letting that really build and understand that way. I mean, if you think about it, if you went to another country that didn't have a Bible in their language and there's many that exist, the only way you're going to tell them about the gospel, about Jesus, about creation, any of it, is orally tell them the story of creation all the way to redemption and God restoring everything. And so that's good. I think it's good that we do this because we have lost the value of oral history. So like I said, last week, we walked through the story of Gideon. Let me recap it for you. Gideon Well, first off, Israel's fallen into um, just oppression again because they chose to worship other gods and to worship other countries. And Gideon is a coward. He's hiding away in a wine press to beat out um, the threshing of the wheat. So, like, he's not even doing the job in a place that he should be doing it because he's hiding and he doesn't want to get found. And so he's doing this and God calls him to be a leader. And he's terrified of the idea of being a leader, but he steps up and he questions God a lot. And he has these debates with God and asking for confirmation after confirmation. And God gives him all those things and confirms all of it. And so finally, he goes to war and God takes him down from over 30,000 people to 3,000 people. And he, or to 300 people, my, my bad, he, and he wins. He wins these wars, and gradually what we see is Gideon pulling away from God, starting to take the credit for the things that he's been doing instead of giving it to God. And then we get to the very end, and he decides that he doesn't want to be king. Israel's asked him to rule over them, and he says, no, I don't want to be your king. The Lord will rule over you, but yet he does everything That a king would do and expects all the treatment that a king would expect. I mean, he he takes all the the gold and and all the silver and the jewels and everything, and he makes something for them to remember him by in a city. And he has concubines and many wives, and he has 70 sons. He has 70 sons. And the one son that we're going to look at today is from his concubine, whose name is Abimelech. Abimelech is not a good guy. His name means son of the king. And what's ironic is that who named him? Gideon names his son. He na- He's not, I'm not going to be your king, but yet he names his son, son of the king. So he rejects being king, but yet he names his kid that. So we're going to fast forward, and here's what we're going to see, is that Gideon is dead. And we're going to walk through the story now of who Abimelech is. I'm not going to give you any application until we get to the end. Then we're going to rewind and go back to the beginning and I'm going to show you all the things that I think we can glean from this story so I'm going to tell you the story of Abimelech and then we're going to go back and we're going to just see everything that's there that we need to understand and so what we have is this is that Abimelech he shows up on the scene he's the son of it says of Jeroboam which is Gideon and he decides that he wants to be king He wants to rule. He wants to fulfill what his namesake is. And so he goes to his people of Shechem, because that's where his mom was from. She was the concubine. And so he goes there. He goes to his kinfolk. And this is what it says in verses 2 and 3, it says, say in the ears of all the leaders of Shechem, he's telling them this, which is better for you, that all 70 sons of Jeroboam, Jeroboam rule over you, or that one rule over you? Remember also that I am your bone and your flesh. His mother relatives spoke to all, all these words on his behalf in the ears of the leaders of Shechem, and their, ears, their hearts inclined to follow Abimelech, for they said, he is our brother. So he showed up, and he's like, here's the deal. I want to rule, but I got 70 other brothers that I have to contend with. So if I can really just kind of sweet talk them into letting me be the leader and they give me the money to back what I want to do, this will work out well for me. So the leaders of Shechem, they took the bait. They decide they're going to fund Abimelech's desires to rule over them. They're going to give him 70 pieces of silver. They're selling out people for silver. Does that remind you of anything? Any of you all? Okay. Like Judas, right? Man. You guys need to wake up. I thought I was tired. I drink coffee. We have coffee in the foyer, by the way, for you if you're tired, all right? So here's the deal. Abimelech gets this silver. The silver comes from the house of Baal-Bareth, which is a false god at the temple of a false god. So this is like evil money, okay, that he's got. And so he takes and hires these what the Bible calls reckless and worthless fellows. So basically he's hired some thugs. He said, come with me. And he shows up and he takes out All 70 of his brothers, so he thought. Okay, so he wipes them all out. The text tells us that he killed them on one stone. So our team this Tuesday, we're like trying to figure out what does that mean on one stone. And so as we kept reading and trying to dig into that, what we discovered is one stone, meaning he literally was sacrificing them on a stone at this temple of Baal. So you got to think he's got blood money from a false god, And he takes his 70 brothers and he wipes them out and sacrifices 70 people. This dude is nuts. I mean, he's literally like a mass murderer. He's crazy. Like, I don't know how you could do this. But he's wiping out his brothers one by one. This is evil stuff. But here's the deal. He didn't kill everybody. There's one brother left jotham he's the youngest brother and he hid himself he takes really well like after his dad right his dad's hiding in a wine press so he's hiding he's like hey i know how to do this i'll just hide you won't kill me and so he hides and he's the lone survivor who can come now and speak some truth into this situation because everyone else is dead everyone else is dead and then this is what he says to them He shows up, and he goes up on top of this mountain, Mount Mount Gerizma. I'm not even saying that right, so excuse me for that one, but I can't pronounce it, so we're just going to deal with it. And this is what he says to the leaders of Shechem. He goes, listen to me, you leaders of Shechem, that God may listen to you. And he gives them basically a parable. He says, the trees once went out to anoint a king over them. And they said to the olive tree, Reign over us. But the olive tree said to them, Shall I leave my abundance by which gods and men are honored and go hold sway over the trees? And the tree said to the fig tree, You come reign over us. But the fig tree said to them, Shall I leave my sweetness and my good fruit and go hold sway over the trees? And the tree said to the vine, You come reign over us. But the vine said, Shall I leave my wine that cheers God and men and go hold sway over the trees? Then the tree said to the bramble You come reign over us. And the Bramble said to the trees, If in good faith you are anointing me king over you, then come and take refuge in my shade. But if not, let fire come out of the bramble and devour the cedars of Lebanon. So with this parable, this fable, however you want to phrase it, you have Jotham going and he's telling them, You've really chose poorly. You could have sought after a king to rule over you that was worthy, an olive tree or a fig tree or, or, or the vine, something good. But you chose the bramble of all things. Like no one else wanted to rule over you. Now you've chose this. This is what you're going to choose. Because see, the bramble was a nasty vine with thorns. I don't know if any of you have ever picked blackberries, but there's two types of blackberry bushes. When I was um, in high school, I worked on this farm um, here in the area called Hanfelder's Farm. Maybe you know of it. It's out like on Pontoon Beach Road, sort of. And so the the guy had two different blackberry bushes. There was the one that had thorns, and so like it's it was horrible. Like I remember trying to pick these blackberries. I'm getting stabbed. I hated it. I was 15 years old. It was miserable, and I would do it. And then the other one though. I would. It didn't have any thorns, so I was like, oh, that'd be cool. Well, it's not, because that's where the bugs go, because they don't want to be with the thorns, because they don't want to get stuck, and so, like, I don't like bugs, all right? Wrecked my first car, because I thought a spider was on my leg, no joke. <laughs> Nine days into it, my dad still swears. Dad, if you're watching on Facebook Live, he still swears this day that I was speeding. I wasn't speeding. I literally thought a spider was on my leg, went to knock it off, hit a telephone post. <laughs> don't like bugs at all, all right? So, like, But that's the kind of, like, bush that they've, like, asked to lead over them. It's this horrible, thorny bush that is no good. It's horrible. And that's who's ruling on. That bramble in this story, in this parable, it jumps on the opportunity. He's like, all right, I'll rule over you. You want me to rule over you? Cool. Come Come take shelter under my shade. Thorn bushes don't provide any shade. No one gets up underneath them. So it's just a very um, odd thing for the, for the Bramble to say, but he was making the point that they have chose poorly. They have chose so poorly in a king. We're going to break all this down in a minute, but this is who they've chose. And he did, then he gives them a caveat. So what he says in verse 16 of chapter 9. So if you're taking notes, you can write this down just to go back and look at this. It says, now, the now, therefore, if you acted in good faith and integrity when you made Abimelech king, and if you've dealt well with Jeroboam and his house and have done to him as his deeds deserve, for my father fought for you and risked his life and delivered you from the land of Midian. And you have risen up against my father's house this day and have killed his son, 70 men on one stone, and have made Abimelech the son of, the son of his female servant, king over the leaders of Shechem, because he is your relative. If then you have you acted in good faith and integrity with Jeroboam and with his house this day, then rejoice in Abimelech and let him also rejoice in you. But if not, let fire come out from Abimelech and devour the leaders of Shechem and Beth Millo, and, fi- and let fire come out from the leaders of Shechem and from Beth Millo and devour Abimelech. And then Jotham ran away and fled. He went back to hiding. That's what he does. He's saying, hey, listen, if you didn't do anything wrong, then you're good. You're good to go. Like, it's cool. You kill, you kill all my brothers or whatever. If, if you think you're in good faith, good luck. But if not, I hope that he burns you and you burn him, and this turns out horrible for everyone, which obviously we know that it is. And so what happens next is we see that Abimelech takes over. He rules now for three years, the text says. He's saying that he took over and he starts to rule and he's, he's king. He's leading them. But God sends this evil spirit, it tells us there in verse 23. So God is at work. It doesn't talk about God a lot in chapter 9, but he's at work this whole time. He's not absent. He's not um, just, oh, distant and this God off in this, you know, space that just letting things happen and play out. He is at work the whole time. And so he sends this evil spirit and he creates such a tension between them that ruling is probably not what Abimelech had hoped that it would be. It's not pleasant, it's not fun, they're not for him, and he's not for them. They're against each other. They've built up this animosity with each other, and now the people of Shechem are setting up an ambush. You can keep reading through this text, and they're setting up this ambush, and they're robbing people as they come by. Things are not going good. Like Abimelech's not ruling them the way that they should be ruled, or really because they should be following God, but they're robbing everyone. And then what happens is this new guy shows up. We can see in verse 26 it says, And Gael, the son of Ebed, moved into Shechem with his relatives, and the leaders of Shechem put confidence in him. Have you ever been watching a movie? And like the new kid shows up at the high school and like everyone flocks to him and like, oh my gosh, this new guy is so cool. Like, let's follow him, let's be his friend. That's kind of like what's happening here. All right. So this guy shows up and he's just kind of loud and obnoxious and, and he's he gets attention. He gets attention from the people of Shechem because then this is what he tells them in verse 28. He says, who is Abimelech? And who are we of Shechem? He's not even from Shechem. He just moved there. But he's like, you know, just saying, we're part, we're together. He goes, is he not the son of Jeroboam and is not Zebal, his officer, Serve the men of Hamor, the father of Shechem? But why should we serve him? Would that, would that this people were under my hand, then I would remove Abimelech. And I would say to Abimelech, increase your army and come out. So Abimelech's been off hiding because they've got this ambush set up. He's saying, hey, who the heck is Abimelech anyway? Like, if he's so tough, where is he? If I was ruling over you, it'd be like this. It'd be great. It'd be grand, right? It's not going to be any better. He's a punk too. And so the people of Shechem, they're worshiping their false gods. They're they're doing all this stuff together because they're holding a festival, it says there in in verse 27 and and they're listening to this guy gal and and they're like yeah man that sounds great I mean they're just easily swayed right and so they're like that sounds awesome let's 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 we'll you can rule over us then let's go take him out let's go take him out but Zabul, the ruler of the city so he's probably like a like a little bit lower than a king like a governor or I don't know whatever we can call him the mayor doesn't matter But he 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 hears this and he's like, This is not good. He still he still likes Abimelech. So he sends word to Abimelech. He's like, hey, this new dude in town's getting ready to take you out, bro. Like you better do something. And this is what you need to do. You need to set up an ambush for them, and you need to be ready. And so he gets word. Abimelech gets word and he starts moving in on Gael and getting he's like, Okay, I'm gonna set up this thing. And so in verse thirty-four, he says, So Abimelech and all the men who were with him rose up that night and set an ambush against Shechem and four companies. So they spread out and they've got this ambush set up. And so Zabal sees off in the distance like people. And he says to Zabul, he's like, hey, like there's people off there. And Zebul's like, oh no, no, that's not people. Well as they got closer, there's no denying it that it was people. And he's like, no, there's people. He's like, yeah, you said that you wanted Abimelech to show up. Here he is. Go prove how tough you are now. That's basically what the text tells us. And so they go and they fight, and they go head to head, and Abimelech chased them off, and he fled before them, and many fell wounded, it says in verse 40, and they get to the gate. And so at the following day, um, Abimelech, he drove Gael out with bull and all of his relatives so they could, would not dwell in Shechem. And this is what happens now is that they fight all the next day. They basically kill everyone, and then, then he sows the land with salt. So I'm telling you, like, Abimelech's a little bit nuts. Like, when you sow the land with salt, you're, you're, you're killing off the land. Right, there's no more blackberry bushes coming up, right? Like, he's wiping this stuff out. He's tearing things up. The guy is a nutcase. And so this is what happens then. After he's done all this, he's killed and captured the city and the people who were in it. He sowed it with salt. In verse 48, when all the leaders of the tower of Shechem heard of this, they'd enter the, strong house, the stronghold of the house of Elbereth. Abimelech was told that all the leaders of the tower of Shechem were gathered together. And so he decides he's going to go up to them. He, he's not done. He's like going to get vengeance for what they've done to him. Like, well, who deserves vengeance? You deserve vengeance. You just killed seventy of your brothers. But he wants everything to be made right. And so he goes, and they're in this, this tower. They're, they're hiding out. And this is what the dude does. He goes and he cuts down a bundle of, like, brush, and he tells everyone to do the same thing, and he sets this thing on fire, the stronghold, and the text says in verse 49 that he killed about a thousand men and women that day. I mean, literally, what I'm telling you, Abimelech is a nutcase. This dude is a serial murderer. He is crazy. Like, if, if Netflix was doing, like, you know, some kind of, like, documentary on another serial killer, it'd be this guy here. He's crazy as they get. He destroys everything. Guy's a psychopath. And so then he goes to the next city. He's just on a roll. He's like, I'm just going to keep going. Like, I'm just going to keep on going now. I, why stop? And so he gets to the next city, the, the Bez, and he encamped against the Bez and captured it. But there was a strong tower there. It says in verse 51, and all the men and women and all the leaders of the city fled to it and shut themselves in it, and they went up to the roof of the tower. So Abimelech comes up to that tower, and he fights against it, it says. He's like, I, I've done this. You want to hide in a tower? Watch this, dude. I'll burn you out. Like, he knows, like he's played this game before, okay? And so it gets interesting, because he is there, and he's like, I'm, I've got this. I'm going to burn him down. A lady takes a millstone and chucks it. This is a big rock, right? Hits, hits Abimelech in the head, knocks him out. He's laying on the ground, about ready to die. This is how arrogant he is. He looks at someone, the text tells, tells us, and he says, quickly... Draw your sword and kill me, lest they say of me, a woman killed him. That dude would get canceled in a moment today, right? Like, wow, that's chauvinistic. Like, you can't die from a woman throwing a stone? He's like, no, like, kill me with a sword. I mean, like, that's how he is. He's like, I cannot go out. Like, I want to be remembered for being a psychopath murderer that just burned everyone up, but not the dude that got killed by a woman getting hit in the head with a rock. Like, you need to stab me now, lest I get told of a woman killed me. And so it says there, a young man thrust him through, and he died. And when the men of Israel saw that Abimelech was dead, everyone departed to his home. Then, verses 56 and 57, thus God returned the evil of Abimelech, which he committed against his father in killing his 70 brothers. And God also made all the evil of the men of Shechem return on their heads. And upon them came the curse of Jotham, the son of Jeroboam. So this is not, God was present this whole time. He was working, and he was doing all kinds of things. So now what we're going to do is we're going to just go back and reverse with the rest of the time that we have. And I'm going to show you point after point that I think we can glean from this and understand just how we can learn. And here's the first one that I want you to see is this. Point your kids to Jesus. Point your kids to to Jesus. Now that sounds so basic and so clear, right? Like, here's the deal. Gideon says all the right things at the end of chapter 8. He's like, I'm not going to rule over you. The Lord's going to rule over you. And yet, what does he do? He acts just like a king. He does everything that a king would do. And he names his son, son of the king. And so then we wonder, like, how's Abimelech turn out so messed up? Like, how's he turn up? He doesn't love God. He's not doing anything to love God. Because he wasn't being pointed towards the Lord. And so many of us here, like, our desire is like, man, I want my kids to grow up to, to love God and, and to do, you know, the things that, that are good and to be in church. And we wonder then, like, why are kids just dropping out of church when they turn 18? Like, 80-something percent of kids when they turn 18 never come back to the church. Like, why? Because you didn't point them to Jesus. That's why. Like, you told them about Jesus. But every time there was an opportunity to miss a Sunday morning, you missed it. Something was always more important than church. If there's something that you could do. And here's the deal. What one generation tolerates, what happens? You know, exactly. The next generation embraces. And so when you tolerate like, hey, church is cool. We love Jesus. We're going to go when it's convenient, when it works for our schedule. We're going to be a missional community when it's cool, when it works for our schedule. We're going to pray together as a family like every once in a while. We're going to do this every once like. When God is just this side piece, and then when your kid turns 18, and they go off to college, and then you're like, man, I hope they find a church, and they don't find a church. like, well, they're just going through a phase. It's just college, and then next thing you know, like they're 26, 27. They're getting married. They're not getting married in a church. They're not doing a Christian wedding. They're not going to church anywhere, and then they're 30. They're 35, 40, and you're like, man, I hope one day they'll go to church. Why? Why would they go? You didn't point them to Jesus. You just talked about religious stuff. For years, for 18 years. Here's the deal. Either point your kids to Jesus now, or someone else is going to point them to the world. And Gideon, he didn't point his kid to the Lord. And you see what happened. He turned into a psychopath. Now, I'm not saying your kid's going to turn into a psychopath, hopefully, but you never know, right? (laughs) Somebody's got to make the news nowadays. He named his kid and spoke things over his kid that wasn't good. By just naming them that. You speak things over your kids each and every day. Each and every day, you're speaking things over your kid. You're telling them things about them that they're going to grow up to believe. Now, hear me. That's not, you can speak all these earthly qualities over your kid and build them up to do all these things, but those are not the qualities that God's looking for. So stop looking for earthly qualities in leaders. That's the next point I want you to see. Because what happens he shows up, Abimelech shows up, and he's like, hey, I'm your flesh and blood. I should rule over you. You don't want these other guys to rule over you. Seventy of them is not in your flesh and blood. Let me rule over you. And they jump on it. They jump on it so quick because they were just led by lofty speech and what looks good. And then as soon as that other guy shows up, um, uh, can't even think of his name now, Gail. they just jump on him too. See, God does not choose leaders nor value the qualities that we see in leaders at all. This is what it says in 1 Samuel 16, 7. 1 Samuel 16, 7, if you're taking notes. But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look on his appearance or the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. See, we are so quick to jump on charismatic leaders, guys who can say the right things, do the right things, present themselves in front of a crowd well, and we're like, oh, yeah, that's great. That's who I want to follow. And yet, they're not who God would choose. God chooses the weak. He chooses the slow. He chooses even the ones who can't pronounce half the words in the Bible. I don't know why. He chose me. But the reality is is that what we'll do is we'll be like the leaders of Shechem and we will choose leaders like bad trees, right? We'll just settle for the bramble because it looks good for the moment, and it's who we could have lead over us. God does not want those kinds of people. He wants people who love him, who have a heart for him, whose hearts are broken for the things that breaks God's heart. That's who he's looking for for a leader. And that's really what we should be building up in our kids, is people who are just completely broken over their own sin, and love Jesus, and want to follow him with everything. It's, they're not chasing anything else other than him. Yeah, do great in, in school, and sports, and in clubs, and band, or whatever it is. Do good in those things, but chase after Jesus first. And all those other things, whatever happens in them, is by God's sovereign hand. The next thing I want you to see in this text is this, is what we have with Jotham, one of the only good kid, maybe, that Gideon had is this. Is don't be afraid to be the lone voice of truth. I want you to pick this up from this text. Is don't be afraid to be the lone voice of truth. Because someone had to say something. I mean, there was an injustice done. Someone needed to speak up and say, hey, like you, what did you do, Shechem? You killed all of my brothers. You wiped them out. You sacrificed them to Baal, a false god. You did wrong. That is not okay. And here's the deal for us. You're not going to go and speak up about like that. Maybe one day, maybe one of you will have a platform to say some pretty important things about injustices in our life and in our culture. But there's injustices in your family. There's maybe your kid doing something wrong. And you're you're terrified to even speak up against your own kid. You don't want to correct them. You don't want to say the hard thing to them because you don't want to upset them. You don't want to hurt their feelings. You want them to feel good about themselves. Well, you want them to feel good about themselves or you want them to understand, like, discipline and what it looks like. And so sometimes we have to be the lone voice of truth. And that goes even deeper in this is that we see so many just horrible things happening in our culture now with racial injustice, abortion, See, kids not treated well, and that's why we have such a need for foster care throughout, not just the state of Illinois, but all over the place. And, and no one wants to speak up and say the hard things. We all just rather sit back and hope that the next person says something. What if, what if he would have never stepped up and said anything about his brothers getting killed? And so where do you need to speak up? Maybe it's at work. Maybe it's, at your, maybe it's here. Maybe you see something going on, and you're like, hey, I don't want to speak up to David or Corey or Jeff and say something. Like, uh, who am I? You're people of God. So speak up. Like, be a voice of truth. In any situation where there needs to be truth spoken, because that's what Jotham will be remembered for, speaking truth. My next question then for you is what will you be remembered for? What will you be remembered for? We have Abimelech. He wanted to be remembered as a warrior, as a king, for killing all these people. He's like, don't, don't let me die by this stone getting hit on my head by like I died from a woman. He did not want that. He was more worried about what people knew him for. And he really, he should be known as a terrorist, a psychopath, a crazy man. That's what he should be known for. And so for you, what, what do you want to be known for? Do you want to be known for preaching good sermons? Like, is that what I want to be known for? Do I want to to be known for a big church? Do I want to be known for the accolades of my kids? No, I hope that I'm known for loving Jesus, serving him and loving his people. That's what I hope I'm known for. But what will you be known for? How are you even known right now? What reputation are you sowing by your daily actions of what you do? I find it interesting. Like ministry is one of the most uh, just intriguing occupations, really, because so many guys like they get into it, and they their intentions are good. Like no one goes into it with bad intentions, right? Like who would? That would be kind of messed up. I, I suppose there's probably always somebody, but. Like, you don't go into it thinking, I just want to be big and famous, but guys get going, and they're good communicators, and they can write really well, so they start writing books, and then you write a book, and it goes well, and the Christian sphere, you know, of atmosphere, it's like, oh, that guy's good, so he comes, he speaks at a conference, and and it's just building and building and building, and next thing you know, they're famous, and there's no accountability, they're not in community, and then they're just, they flake out, and, you know, they're having affairs, or whatever's going on. Sometimes in our lives... This goes just for ministers. It goes for you. Sometimes it's okay to live this life and be unknown and faithful. Just be unknown and faithful. I would rather die unknown by anyone outside of this community and be faithful to God than to die one day known for some just horrible sins that I committed because I let popularity and being famous or whatever and just trying to chase the next thing be what drove me. But what will you be remembered for? Are you, gonna, are you so worried about how you look to everyone else sitting next to you, how your Instagram looks, how your Facebook looks, how your 401k looks? Are you more worried about what you're leaving your kids in inheritance than if you're leaving them with Jesus? Like that's what we need to be yearning for is that we're remembered for loving him. And then the last thing is this. God's justice and wrath is a sure thing. God's justice and wrath is a sure thing. It, it was kind of absent, you would think, through the story. You're like, where's the justice in this? Like, how is God letting them? Why didn't he raise up another judge? Why didn't he raise up a judge? God didn't need to. He was going to let them judge each other. He going to let Shechem and, and Abimelech just judge each other and wipe each other out. See, God was at work through the whole thing because he, he sent that evil spirit to create havoc and create a mess, and it was coming. His justice was coming. Can you wait for God to work out things in your own life? Where maybe there needs to be some justice, there needs to be some things sorted out. Can you be patient and wait on the Lord? Sometimes we don't want to. We want to speak up. We want to run our mouths and say, well, this or that, or we want to take action and do things. Sometimes we just need to sit back and wait on God to do what God does. And right now, we know, like, obviously, if you turn on the news, like, our lives... Our mess. Our culture, our society is a mess. Our country literally seems like it's falling apart day by day. And if you don't think so, then I don't know. Like, we need to talk because, like, it, it doesn't look good. Okay? But yet, God is at work. He's not absent in this. We we gotta trust that God is at work the whole time. We just, we don't need to always be the ones to seek justice. We just need to trust God and be His own voice of truth. And let him work things out. But here's the deal. We deserve to be crushed like Abimelech. We don't deserve some honorable death. We deserve to get crushed by stones and wiped out. Why? Because God's perfect justice that's coming one day, we deserve it. You deserve it. I deserve it. We all do. Romans 6.23 tells us that we deserve death because of our sins. And so God's justice is coming one day. One day he's coming back. And here's the good thing. Romans 5.8 says, but God. Those are the two best words in the Bible. Like literally when like something's coming, it says, then but God. But God loved us while we were still sinners. And so here's the deal. God's justice is coming for all of us one day. I've talked about it time and time again up here. And the reality is, is that when his justice comes, either you're going to be receiving it and being like, okay, I'm getting his grace now. Or you're going to receive it, and you're going to be crushed like Abimelech. So when he finishes administering justice, all those who are not found in Christ, it's not going to be good. It's not going to be good. And so I want you can just write this in your notes. It's not or just think about it. What feelings do you have about God's justice? Like what feelings does God's justice bring up in you? I want you to to sit in that today as you leave here. Does it bring up fear or concern? Maybe it gives you peace because you know that through Christ, God is making all things right. He's making all things new, and you are in Christ. And so you know that God's justice is not going to be poured out on you the way that it could be if you were a non-believer. And so here's the deal. As we start to wrap up, I want you to know this because I think that sometimes we don't give this enough thought. God loves you. He genuinely loves you, like with all of his being. He, and he's not just like love is an emotion. He is love. And he loves you. And there's a reason why we have these stories to go back and to read about history. It's because he loves us and he wants us to learn from it. And the verse that we all probably would know, whether you're sitting here or, or watching on Facebook, is, is John 3.16. Because it's such a, just a basic verse that everyone knows. It says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. God does not hate you. He does not want your life to go bad. He doesn't want things to be a mess for you. He loved you and gave his son for you so that we could have life and have it to an abundance. I'm not talking about wealth abundance. I'm talking about joy and comfort and peace in Jesus. And Jesus went to the cross willingly for you to have that relationship with him. So I want to ask you, do you believe that today? As you read through a text that's so absent of God, it seems, but yet he's working behind the scenes, do you believe that God is working in your life right now behind the scenes? Maybe you're here today and you've never put your faith in Jesus, and there's a reason why you're here, because God's been working behind the scenes to draw you into a relationship with him. I hope today, if you've never given your life to him, you will confess him as your Lord, put your faith in him. So the team's going to come back up. They're going to lead us again. And here's what's going to happen. I'm going to do something like really old school Southern Baptist. I don't, I don't even care if it's weird for you. You'll, you'll get over it. We're going to pray in a second. But I'm going to ask you just to bow your head and close your eyes. I ain't going to ask anyone to raise their hands and like start, or see your hand, or see your hand. I ain't going to do all that. That's weird. I ain't doing that. But I just want you to, like, I always say take a minute and to pray. And I don't know if you, if you do or not. Maybe you do. But I want you, before we take communion, I want you to bow your head. I want you to close your eyes. And whatever God's saying to you today, I, I want you to take a second and I want you to pray. If you're here today and you've never given your life to Christ, if you're watching on Facebook and you're like, man, I don't know what God's justice looks like for me, but I, I don't want to receive it. I want his grace. Then sitting in your home, close, bow your head, close your eyes, and pray to God right now whatever's on your heart. And, we're gonna, and when you're done, I'm going to pray for us in a second. And when we're done, we're going to take communion if we're believers. If you're here and, you're, and you've given your life to Christ, then we're going to take communion together. But if you're not a believer, if you've never given your life to Christ, you can do that right now. You can do that right now where you're sitting. Find me after service. Say, hey, man, I I pray and ask God to save me for the very first time. I've put my faith in him. Find me, find Jeff, find Mark or Jess, one of us, and and just tell us, because we want to talk to you more about what it means to be a Christian. Today could be a great day to make the best decision you've ever made in your whole life. Let me pray for us. God, help us to not be someone who's just out for our own fame, seeking to rule over things, seeking to chase down notoriety and namesake and wanting to be remembered for things that don't matter. But yet, God, let us chase you. Let us to to not want to be the ruler but to follow you, the king of all the universe. God, I pray that today that we learn from this text and we grow in it and more into the likeness of your son for us that are believers. God, if there's anyone watching or here today, God, that does not know you as their Lord and Savior, that they're not genuinely put their faith in you, not just know that you exist, given their life to you. God, I pray that you will convict them, that your spirit will move in their lives and draw them into a relationship with you through your son, Jesus Christ. that They will give their life to you. Lord, we love you. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.